Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive 2014 Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Rudy, I have a big problem. I can't find a place to buy or sell gaming products. You know, I had that problem, too. Then I went to my DM. He told me about NobleKnight.com. Isn't that one of those internet stores? They are, but they're also a brick-and-mortar game store. Since using Noble Knight, I feel great! I can buy D&D and other tabletop RPG products from any edition, even stuff that's out of print. That does sound pretty great. Just pretty great? Get this, Noble Knight has all that, at a discounted price. And with Noble Knight, I can even sell them my old gaming products I'm not using anymore. Oh, wow. I've got to check it out. You don't have to ask your DM if NobleKnight.com is right for you. We're pretty sure it is, since you're listening to a podcast about the minutia of tabletop RPGs. People who use NobleKnight.com experience joy, having more money in their bank accounts, and lots of awesome gaming sessions. Seriously, why haven't you checked them out yet? Jeff Greiner uses Noble Knight, so should you. Well, my life is changed. It sure is, buddy. Soon, all our lives will be changed. Hi there. I'm Shelly Mazenoble. I'm here to introduce Bob Salvatore. Bob taught me everything I know about writing, but I'll never be as good as he is. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's Bob. Thank you, Shelly. Okay, I like to keep these really informal, and uh, Q&A is my, my favorite part of it, so I'm just going to give you a quick update on everything I got going on, and, and then we can just open it up for questions, or take it wherever you want to want to take it. It's really, I have a lot less going on, even though I'm busier, and what I mean is like 38 Studios is gone, so I'm not going to talk about that anymore, uh, unless you want to, there's not really much to say, Rhode Island owns it, talk to the governor. Um, <laughs> And um, so it's, I'm pretty narrowed down on what I've been working on, and, and mostly it's been Forgotten Realms and Dark Elf. And um, so you had the Companions come out last year and start the Sundering. Um, but the sequel to the Companions is actually a book called Night of the Hunter, which came out in March. Some of you probably know that. And now the sequel to Night of the Hunter is a book called Rise of the King, and that's coming out at the end of September this year. Um, I've already written the book for next March. It's called Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf. I can say that now because it's up on Amazon. And I'm working on the last book, or the Companions thing, uh, which we, I haven't even begun to think of a title yet because I don't even know where it's going to wind up yet, which is the best part of writing, because uh, I never know until I get there. Uh, the other cool thing that I announced on the Reddit the other day, if um, many of you probably know, is that... About, about two months ago, um, my wife was looking at this iced tea blog where he was ranting about having, he went to do an audio book and, and found out it was a D&D book. And he was like, they got flying horses and talking swords and stuff. And this is really deep nerd shit. You know, he's like, all that. so she brings it to me. And she says, Bob, take a look at this. And I, and I looked at what he was saying. And I said, that's my story. <laughs> and so I called Wizards and I said, hey, Liz, is that my story? And she said, yeah, we wanted to surprise you, but he kind of spilled the beans. And as it turns out, Audible did the collected stories of The Legend of Drist. Um, 
And they have a cast that I really love because they have like Ice T, Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> did one. Um, Will Wheaton, who I just saw, did um, If They Ever Happened Upon My Lair, which I love because that's a big one. Uh, Felicia Day did one. Sean Astin, David Duchovny, Michael Chiklis. It's just a great cast. Dan Harmon, great cast. So the the announcement is that for they, well, this was a couple of days ago, so it's now 37 days, I think. But they, would, they did 40 days. You can get it for free at Audible. So you can download it for free. After that, it's going to be like 36 bucks. So download for free. Um, so it's like 37 days left, if anyone's interested. I haven't heard it yet. I did the forward, by the way. Um, after they, the, the cat got out of the bag, they said, oh, yeah, we want you to do a forward. So go record this. And so I had to write a forward and record it, which was a lot of fun, actually. So that takes, that's pretty much takes care of everything I'm involved in with the realms at the moment, which is quite a bit. It's about 90% of my time. Um, the other thing is last year I reinvigorated, I think, Demon Wars, and I did a Kickstarter with my sons. One of my sons is a game designer who works for a pretty big game company, um, pretty high-level game designer. And uh, my other son, of course, Gino, I've written with a few times. And so I, I went to Brian and I said, you know, I had this game I started designing back in like 1990, and I really didn't go very far with it. What do you think? And I gave it to him and he goes, yeah, I can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And so Brian designed this game, and, and it's been something he'd been thinking about for a long time. It's a pen and paper game. It's set in the Demon Wars world, and it uses the gemstone magic system, which is really cool. And basically the first product, the one we did the Kickstarter for, is called Demon Wars Reformation. And it's about the Abelican Church, and after the events in Immortalis, there's a big power void, and everything's falling apart. And so they need heroes to fix the world, because it's, it's all going downhill fast. And so Brian came up with a, a very elegant, simple game system that's a lot of fun to play. My group's been playing it for about a year and a half now. Um, it's based on balance, hit points, and focus. I'm not going to get into detail unless people ask specific questions. But basically, you can play it without a pen and paper. You don't even need that because it's used, used like poker chips for each of the, the uh, pools that you have, the mana pools, if you will, balance, hit points, and focus. And... Um, that Kickstarter was successful, and I'm happy to say I've actually got the first ones here. Uh, I can't sell them at the here because the Kickstarter people get it first. But they are shipping. I will pass these around if anyone's interested. Um, they are shipping Monday and Tuesday to the Kickstarter people. And after that, we'll be for sale. And I think the second Kickstarter is probably going to go up before the end of the year because we have to add some classes. The rogues are in here and the monks. And we've got to add like the all heart knights and all kinds of good stuff. Um, so that's kept me very busy. I'm really proud of it. It came out great. The game's a lot of fun. Um, and then the other thing that kind of ties into this, I'll tell you here and please tell your friends, um, anybody who's ever interested in getting signed books and I'm not gonna be where you are, so let's say you want a Christmas present for a friend or something, but it's about the time we started the Kickstarter, my wife started an online store. And it's easy to remember, you'll love this, it's called aresalvastore.com. <laughs> and you can get all the books there. Um, we have a lot of other print editions as well. You can get clan battle hammer shirts and hats, like my softball team. Uh, and um, so if you're ever interested, in, and you'll be able to get the Demon Wars book there, the RPG will be there as well. 
So if you have any game stores in your area, I know Alliance is going to be carrying them, so they'll just, their distributor, distributor will have them. Or you can have them get in touch with me directly if they want to get wholesale prices direct from me. So that's everything I'm working on. That's the commercial. Um, I really want to open this right up, like I said, to, to uh, questions because it's a lot more fun for me if we're talking about what you want to talk about. So who's going to start the questions? I always start slow. Go ahead. Uh, who's the most interesting character from your point of view that you've written for in anything that you've written? The most interesting character? From your point of view. The surprising answer to this, I think, would be a character named Brother Francis from Demon Wars. And the reason is because, now Demon Wars, those books are huge, right? The Demon Awakens, like 250,000 words. And it's a big story because I'm describing the world. I'm explaining the magic system, the societal structures and everything. It's really a world-shattering type book, okay? And so I've got a lot of instances where I need to have a monk bringing in information, if you will. And I didn't... I didn't want to have like this nameless guy in a red shirt, like right? So I, I had a monk named Brother Francis who just was showing up in the first couple of books whenever I needed someone to come in and say, you know, Father Abbott, you know, the powers are at the wall or whatever. This was the guy that kept showing up. And then he started being used a little bit more in the machinations that were going on, all the backstabbing going on in the monastery. But a weird thing happened when I wrote the fourth book, Mortalis, which is my favorite book ever. Um, that I've written. All of a sudden, Brother Francis became very real to me, and I realized that he was getting a character arc without me even realizing it through the books. It was a complete surprise to me. And then as his story finished in that book, Immortalis, I, I thought, you know, completely caught by surprise. Um, how did this happen? Where did this character come from? And that was, that was a pretty amazing thing, actually. So he's really interesting. But there are a lot of characters that are interesting for different reasons. I mean, Jarl Axel is interesting because I still haven't figured him out. <laughs> okay? Dritz is still interesting to me because Dritz is the guy I put under pressure. I beat him up with all kinds of things and I look for his answers. And in his answers, I find my answers to questions I have. Uh, it's like there's an old saying that says, you know, people write to learn what they don't know. And I'm going to add to that and say they write to learn what they do know but didn't know they knew. And so Dritz is the guy that's kind of my sounding board on that. So he'll always be up there as well. Yeah. Too many guys. I can't even remember them all. All of it the borrows. There you go. <laughs> In a story like that, that's such a large volume, do you still use, or at what point did you stop using outlines? No, I still use outlines because if the contracts say we will pay you X number of dollars on an outline, and if you don't turn in the outline, they never send you the check. So I still use outlines. But what I always find hilarious is that if I wait till the book's done, because what, what happens is I'll outline like the first two or three chapters in, in more detail. And then I'll just say the end of section one is going to go like this, and section two is going to go like this, and section three is going to go like this, and or whatever. And that's my outline. And it's pretty general. And then what happens is I realize about two or three chapters into the book, that I don't think this was in the outline. But I don't even go back and look, really, because at this point, the story is, the characters are talking to me, they're telling me their story, and I just follow them where they want me to go. And usually I wind up somewhere near where I said I wasn't, you know, I'm always aware of what I have to hit, the beat points I have to hit, because it is a shared world, and there are other people doing other products 
that will be related to what I'm doing. So I can't like say, you know, if we're doing Tyranny of Dragons, I can't in my book kill all the dragons, right? Because that would kind of mess up their entire schedule. So, but, but I let the books take over. And the characters tell me who they are and what they're doing. And I do that even with new books, with new series. And really what I do, and I tell this to everyone who says, you have any tips for writing? And it, for me, it's like, get, fall in love with one of your characters. And then follow him. See the world through his or her eyes. Let this character show you who they are, you know, who he is, who she is, who, and what the world is. And they'll take you on an adventure. So for me, writing a book is almost the way some people read books. Okay? Because there's a lot of times, and I mean this, I don't really know what's going to happen on the next page. I get in some situations where I really don't know what's coming next. And then as the story starts to unfold in my mind as I'm typing, I'm, I'm usually like, oh crap, I can't really do that. But I just do it, because that's what the story said do. And I think writing like that is a lot more fun. If I had to, if I had to do a complete outline and then adhere to it, I'd feel more like a mechanic than a writer. And, you know, when you do a novelization like Attack of the Clones or something like that, that's what you are. You know, you're trying to put a little bit of meat on the, on, on the car that you're in the pit crew for, if you will. But uh, when I'm doing my own stuff, I just let the characters take me where they want to go, and I just enjoy the journey. And I have, so that's a good thing. Who else has a question? Yes? Uh, i got to admit, uh, I never really liked Wolfgang. Okay, when someone starts off a question with, I gotta admit, you know you're really in trouble if you're sitting there. <laughs> My point is, is I think it was after Spine of the World, it was it Muskin? Was the book? What was the book that just basically was about the story as he dealt into the model? That was Spine of the World. Okay. I gotta admit, from that book, you made me like a character that I just didn't like. What? How did you develop it? How did you make him. Well, it was funny because when, in the first, Wolfgar was really only in four books, right? He was in the Icewind Dale trilogy and the Legacy. And then he kind of went away. Um, no, it was, uh, yeah, and he kind of went away. And I liked him a lot when we started, but I realized as we were going with Wolfgar that this was a character that was never going to be able to rise above the limitations of his heritage that his, that his culture had placed upon him. So even though like he wanted to love Caddy Bree and he, he didn't know how to, you know? And there was, so there was always that kind of edge about him that wasn't a good thing necessarily. And then when he fell, I didn't know whether he was dead or not. I, it wasn't like a planned thing. But when I realized that you know we were going to see Wolfgar again, you know, if if some things in life, you know, they say when you hit bottom you change. Well, you can't hit bottom worse than being tortured by a demon for six years. I mean, that's pretty bad. It was, it was funny actually when when I wrote the the Spine of the World, I sent it to my editor and I said. Half the people are going to love this book and half the people are going to hate this book. And there's nothing I can do about it because it's a book that I have to write. Period. And it was, it was pretty funny because I got this letter from this kid and he said, he said, um, I don't get it. What's wrong with Wolfgar? He's got all his hit points back. <laughs> okay. I'll just leave it at that, right? But I found him to be a much more in interesting character after that for me as the writer. Because I started to understand him more. 
And then all the things he went through with Colson and the Nockney and all of that, I think it all played out in a positive way for him as he developed. And I don't know if, if anyone's read the story uh, To Legend He Goes. It's, it's kind of the one, in, it's in the collective stories. It's the kind of the swan song for Wolfgar, part one. And um, I really came to like him a lot. And then he surprised me again after that. And I won't tell you how because it'll be a spoiler for people who aren't up to the books. But then um, he continues to surprise me as, as I think about who he is and what he's doing. Because he's living, he's living now completely differently. He's, um, it's, it's almost like, okay, I did everything I had to do there, and now that's all gone, and now I can do whatever I want to do. And I just want to have fun. So he's almost je like jealous of Jarl Axel or something, you know? And I, I'm, I'm digging the character. Him and Ridge is both now, yeah. Yes? Yeah? Um, we were talking about a minute ago about the, uh, you kind of write sort of free flow, Yep. I'm sure there's been a time, or maybe many times probably, where you get to a spot where you know where you want to go, and you know where you are right now, but you're not quite sure what to do with that middle. Oh, sure. I, I, I run into that spot on the same writing, my own writings, and I'm just trying to figure out what, what, is, what gets you over that hump. I just follow the characters. They'll take me there eventually. When a character is not behaving the way I want him to or her to, instead of arguing with the character, I try to figure out what's bothering the character. And there's usually something going on that I've missed. It's kind of a weird thing. There's usually something going on that I've missed. You know, it's like a little trick I use. When, when I'm driving down the road and somebody's driving like an idiot, right? Instead of screaming and going all road rage, I pretend it's my sister. Okay, who's older. And, you know, she got a little confused on the road. And then I'm calmed down. So when I'm having a problem with a character, I treat him the same way. I say, okay, what's really going on? And I just let the character take me there. That's the only way I can describe it. And I always get there. I don't believe in writer's block. I always seem to get there. Maybe I'm not getting where I wanted to go, where I expected to go. And that's okay. Because <laughs> I'm telling the story that they wanted to tell me. I know it doesn't sound real, but that's the way I do it. It's, it's kind of weird. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Regis has completely done 360. Regis met Oliver and, DeBurrows. But. And I just, when I started reading that, I thought to myself, okay, he's going to have a little more respect this time, maybe. Regis, when I, when I wrote The Companions, every character in that book, every one of the main characters in that book, had a different role to play in what I was doing had a different question to answer. Because I knew there were going to be a lot of people who had questions and doubts about what I was doing too. And I did too, to be honest with you, because I was doing something you're not supposed to do. And so, Bruner, if you think about it, was answering the question of, doesn't this just cheapen everything? That's what Bruner's role was. Everybody else that was involved in it approached things in a very different way. And so instead of, instead of just saying, yes, this happened, hiccup, let's go on, what I did is I really thought about what it would be like to get that chance. Because everybody said it, right? Who hasn't, who hasn't said, you know, if only I knew then what I know now? Well, here you go. Um, and it turned into a really great exploration for me. 
through all the different characters, but the one that was the most fun to write was Regis, by far. I mean, that whole grandfather of assassins thing, and the and the and then the uh, the grinning ponies, and it was just so much fun. You know, he's still the reluctant hero, but now at least he's not admitting it anymore. You know, so yeah, it was it was just a good time. The the uh, what is it on his mother's father's side where he can go underwater? For yeah, he's got. Yeah, we, we won't give too much away, but yeah, he can do all kinds of good things, which shows up in later books, which is kind of cool. So yeah, he, he's fun. He's fun. I hated I had to kill him again. But. <laughs> Who's got a question? Yes, sir. I don't know. I don't know. I'm back in Demon Wars, and that's where I'm staying. Um, the thing is, if you look at the map of Demon Wars, it will very much resemble the eastern coast of Canada. That's by design. If you look at the map of the Crimson Shadow books, it looks an awful lot like England and northern France. That's by design. Crimson Shadow books were supposed to be Demon Wars, but I didn't have the time to develop the world the way I did in The Demon Awakens. But I've been thinking that maybe the Crimson Shadow really is Demon Wars. And, and so maybe we'll have Oliver and Luthien come floating across the ocean, maybe stop at the Weathered Isles and hang out with the Poweries for a while, that'll be fun, and then come in and... So, it, if you see Oliver again, I do expect it will be in the Demon Wars setting. Eventually. But I do, I do love Oliver. He's, he's one of my favorite characters that I've ever written. I always describe him as my cross between uh, Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride and the little French guy on the wall and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Gotcha. Um, and the thing about writing Oliver, it's very hard to write him because you can't just tell jokes. He has to say things and people will read them. About five pages later, they'll go, what? And then they page back and they just groan and then I win. That's, that's Oliver. That's Oliver. And he's the only character I ever played in the game and then put in the book. Because we were playing this game and we had this DM who was horribly slow. Like one night we went, over, we went to a feast and we got the description of all seven courses. And that was the entire night playing. So we have been playing for like, I don't know, a month and a half. I was still first level. And I was playing a thief named Oliver. And he was, you know... Mr. Yuli, you know, and, and he was, uh, I was in the voice, in the whole Oliver voice, and just be, trying to be as obnoxious as I could be. And I knew it worked because in that sixth or seventh week, we were approaching this, these ruins, and the wizard cast a clairvoyance spell, and the idiot looked back from behind the columns, but didn't look at the columns. So he said, It's all clear. As soon as he said, It's all clear, Oliver goes, I'll lead. And Oliver goes dancing up the steps, and an ogre comes out and just smushes. And we play in that group that if you, if you roll a natural 20, you then roll percentage dice. And if you roll 1 to 85, it's double damage. If you roll 86 to 99, it's triple damage. If you roll 100, it's instant kill. So this ogre that does a d10 plus 6 jumps out and criticals my first level thief and rolls a 99. So he's rolling 3d10 plus 18. And I have a first level thief. So, for those of you who don't play D&D, this basically means that Oliver got splattered all over the stairs. And for those of you who do play D&D, this basically means that Oliver got splattered all over the stairs. 
and I knew at that moment that Oliver was going in the book because everybody got up and cheered. <laughs> and the only other guy I've played in the game is Brother Thaddeus. In the Demon Wars game that we've been playing, I had a character named Brother Thaddeus. And Brother Thaddeus was a, was a, a disciple of St. Avalon, which means he's a gemstone magic user. And he thought all these other monks that were fighting were like doing it all wrong. You're not supposed to fight your gemstone. This is where the real power is. And he inadvertently let loose a lightning bolt and killed my nephew Mike's character um, viciously. <coughs> and he felt really bad. So he started using, and he was like, he had like a, a two strength and a really terrible, you know, endurance score. So he was like this really little weakling wizard, you know. But he knew he had to fill that role in the group now as a tribute to the man he had killed. So he started using the gemstones to enhance himself. He got the Dolomite to make himself stronger and he had all these gemstones. He would cast all the spells to make himself physically stronger and then he'd go up and fight. And he wasn't nearly as useful, but it was really fun to play. So when I wrote, when we did the Kickstarter, if we hit a certain goal, we, I was going to add a novella. And we hit the goal, so I had to write the novella, and I wrote it about Brother Thaddeus, called The Education of Brother Thaddeus. And so he's the second character I've written that's actually got, that, that played, that actually got into a book. I never played Dress. I tried to once after the books came out, and they killed him in the first session. <laughs> yeah, we were fighting a bunch of goblins, and since I was playing a, a dark elf from the Fiend Folio, he had like a 19 dex. So of course I used a bow to start, right? And so I'm there plunking goblins, and I shoot a goblin, and I, I roll, and I do six damage. And, and the DM goes, okay, he's looking at you, he's mad. And he's still fighting down there. I'm like, what? And the goblin, I get a clear shot, and I shoot him again. And I did like five more. And he's running. Tough goblin. So I shoot him again, and he's going out the door. And he goes out the door. So I chased him out in the hall, and the ogre Magi, who was polymorphed into a goblin, Turned around, hit me with a cone of cold, and everybody around the table said, play a real character. <laughs> so no drills. They won't let me. They're mean. They play with real jerks, you know that? <laughs> Anybody get a game going? <laughs> Who else has a question? Yes. You. I uh, hope the, the lore guys don't kill me here. Are there any of your books that your legendary characters meet up with? You know, Henry Wood's legendary characters, or Last Hand, you know, Monster. Sastam's in Gontelgrim. Oh, okay. And Neverwinter. Okay. And Elminster is not in any of my books, but Kelvin is in Halfling's Gem. You gotta help me, that was 25 years ago when I wrote that. Uh, but Kelvin's in there, and um, Doug Falcon hands in a couple, and Illustrial's in a couple. But other than that, not really, because one of the things about the realms that appeals to me is it's a very big place. You know, the, the Dragonlance was the big story, and the realms is a thousand stories. And one of the things that I really like is that we're able to tell our stories and stay out of each other's way. So I would feel very uncomfortable writing Elminster, because that's Ed's character. And I could never get the voice right. That's Ed's voice. You know what I mean? And I'd feel very uncomfortable with him writing Triss because he'd kill him. <laughs> and I know this because many years ago at Gen Con I did a charity game and Ed was running it and I was playing Drift and people paid like 
absurd amounts of money to play in the game for charity. So we're playing the game, and Ed's beating me up everywhere that he can. And finally, we're, we're being chased out of the place by a beholder. And so we come into this room. It's like a bottomless pit with just a ledge along the side. And up top is like a sconce. So Dritz climbs up on the sconce, and he tells everyone, go, I'll save you. You know, I'll, I'll hold him back. And the beholder drifts in, and Dritz leaps off the sconce onto the beholder, which was a gas spore. And it blew up, and I fell an infinite amount of distance and died. <laughs> and they made sure they couldn't find the body so I couldn't be resurrected. <laughs> Maybe I will put Elminster in the book now that I <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Shelly, what do you think? Can I put Elminster in my next book? Okay, I'm telling them you said I could. <laughs> I'm going to tell them you told me to. You made me. <laughs> Everyone here will back me up. Who made me put Dritt, Elminster in the Dritz book? Shelly. Yeah, <laughs> Who else says, yes, sir? In the game itself? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't even presume to have a contribution, but actually, that's a good, that's a good story, and I get to about... Come on up, grab this for me. Pass this around. <coughs> just pass it around. You guys just look through it. Um, all right. Fourth edition, what happened was, we showed up at Gen Con, Ed and I, and we went into a room, and they basically gave us a book and said, this is what's going on. The world's advancing 100 years. And we argued and we argued and we argued. Because we didn't want to advance in 100 years. We were all in the middle of storylines. And so it became this big fight, if you will. And we walked out of there and Ed looked at me and he said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm playing a long game. I don't know about you. And it was really right there, after that meeting in like 2006, that Ed and I started coming up with the pieces that would go into the sundering. We didn't come up with the idea of the sundering. That was, that was over at Wizards. But we had ideas of what we wanted to accomplish. Because we had a feeling that a lot of people playing in the realms were going to feel the same way. With 5th edition, it was completely different. The entire process had changed. They, they actually put us in a room. We went to breakfast with the, the, all the top people in the games department and the brand people. And they said, tell us how you really feel. And we did. Especially me. <laughs> I was mad. I was mad about a few things, and so was Ed. Not just about fourth, not about fourth edition, but about the process. And about the fact that we weren't consulted. We were told what we were going to do. Not the sp specifics of the book, but just the situation that we got put in. And so we, they, they listened. And when we made suggestions, they listened. And so then we had an author summit. And instead of them telling us, this is what's happening to the realms... They told us the meta story, this is what's happening and how we're explaining what we're doing with 5th edition. How would that affect the realms? And they brought Troy Denning back, which was wonderful because Troy was there at the beginning. And so it was really Troy and Ed got up and they said, this should happen, this should happen. And then myself and Aaron Evans and Paul Kemp were both on the phone and Richard Lee Byers was there. We were throwing in, how about if we do this over here? You know, if I'm doing this, why can't I do this? And they listened. So the process was a thousand times better. And I think the, I think the products will be. I don't think that, I'm not, that's not to disparage what came before, but to me it seems like everybody was on the same page the whole way in this one. 
Um, as far as the games themselves go, my, my son, both of my son's favorite games are, were fourth, favorite editions were fourth. And I think that's true of a lot of kids their age when the games came out. Um, it's much more like a computer game. It wasn't the game I wanted because I wanted first, I still play first edition. Okay? Because to me, I like the agility as a DM and as a player to come up with how the situation is going to resolve without having to look it up at a table. And so when Brian was going to do Demon Wars, I told him, I go, okay, here's the deal. Make it play like first edition. A different system, but make, I want that kind of, you're the DM, improvise. You're the player, improvise. In Demon Wars, for example, if this guy right here in the blue shirt was shooting arrows at my friends and I was up here, and there was a chandelier there, I could jump up on the table, grab the chandelier, swing and land behind him and take a swing out. If I made my rolls. And had enough balance to spend to make my roll high enough. If I'm the DM, I would say, okay, that has, that's really, look what you're trying to do. That has a difficulty of 140. And you can add your agility, which is, can be up to 20%. To your roll, and you're rolling a D, you're rolling percentage dice. So you can only get up to 120 if you roll 100, which you're probably not going to roll, right? You're going to roll a 51 on average or a 50. But then every point of balance you spend, you get to add to that roll 10 points or 20 points, depending on the type of roll it is. So if I've got 10 balance, and I can spend that balance to now make the roll and make the attack, there you go, you've done this great heroic thing. But now you get a problem because balance is how you defend as well. And now you're almost out of balance. And you're behind enemy lines. But you can do those kind of cool things. But that's the kind of mental agility I'm talking about that first edition gives you because the rules don't stop you from doing it. And um, fifth edition seems to be a lot more like that. It's a very easy, you don't have to have your nose in the book when you're playing game. So I, I haven't played the final yet. I did play test one of the almost finals. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Because that's the kind of game I like. I don't want the game that's, you know, everybody's got their, their faces buried in books. I don't want you to be looking at books. I don't want you to be looking at your character sheet. I want you to be playing and telling me what your character will do. Everything I do, in, in, in that book I have this thing called Bob's House Rules. These little sections in each chapter. And I just tell you how I do certain things. And everything I do, like my death system, is really intricate. It, it, because I want to hear people wailing on the floor for a while before I kill them. You know? And so everything that I do in the house rules is designed to add flavor to the game from a storytelling perspective. Okay? And I don't mean that people are going to sit there telling stories, because there are games already like that. I don't like them. Okay, but I mean, from a storytelling perspective, these house rules allow you to make a game, any game, make more, make the suspension of disbelief easier. Because that's my role. You see, as an author in fantasy, whether you're writing movies, or writing games, or writing books, the first thing you have to do is you have to take the pressure off the reader, the player, or the viewer. Because I'm already asking you to believe in magic, 
in this magic system. I'm asking you to believe in dragons and other weird monsters. I'm actually, I'm asking you to believe that there are goblins and, and dwarves and elves and trolls and giants and all these other things. So you're already suspending your disbelief and coming into this world I've created or at Greenwood's created or whatever to begin with. But if I can get a, an internal logic and consistency to that world so that Okay, this is the way magic works. And it actually has a logic all its own that makes sense. It's easier for you to suspend disbelief. And the easier it is for you to suspend disbelief, the more immersed you will be in what you're doing. The more it will seem real to you. And that's the job I've had. Who's a writer in here? I know there's writers in here. Who's a writer? Okay, that's your first job as a writer. If you're writing speculative, fantastical fiction, is to allow the reader to suspend disbelief by making it logical. So, that's what we try to do. That's what Bob's House Rule is supposed to do. And they're supposed to make players roll around on the floor in agony. Because <laughs> that's more fun for me. I don't care if it's fun for them. Who else has a question for me? Wow, it must be Saturday night at Gen Con. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I think you will. I, I don't know. I haven't really thought much about it yet. I kind of got caught off guard by him, honestly. I think. Well, I did too. Yeah, well, I did too. <laughs> and looking at who he is, it, it's. Um, I think it would be interesting, but it's hard for me to promise backstories right now because we just keep seeming to be moving forward. Like. The most asked question I get is, are you ever going to tell that Jack, Jarl Axel Zacnafane book? Right? And I want to. And I'd like to write it. But we're, we're so busy going forward. Going forward with all these, you know, the tyranny of dragons. And then I know what's coming next, but I can't tell you. You know, before that, the sundering. That it's, it's hard for me to, to know. At the very least, you will see it in dribs and drabs as we go forward. But um, I don't know. But like I said, he caught me by surprise, so what do I know? Yes? So, recently it was announced that um, uh, Terry Brooks' uh, Shara... Uh, yeah, John Favreau's doing it on TV. A TV series. Yeah. But they're starting with, in the middle of it, they're starting with Elfstones instead of all the way back at the Sword of Shinara. Well, that's the second book, and that's actually the one I would start with, too. I was going to ask, if, if, they, if they were to start something like that in, in the middle of one, would that bother you, or would that... They wouldn't ask me. Um, no, I, I mean, to me it would be, did they do something entertaining and good? Um, and if they did, then I'd be like, good. You know, I, I wouldn't... If it were me, I would do Homeland. And I would do Homeland and I would do it with some weird lighting, kind of like the 300 or something. So that, because otherwise it would just be black, right? And you just have people banging stuff in the background and... Ugh! Oh, great movie, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, but you know, like I said, that, that's that's all. All of that's up to Hasbro. They, I mean, I would love to see Dark Elf movies, or a Dark Elf series, or a Demon War series, or a Highwayman movie. Highwayman would make a good movie, and The Woods Out Back would make a good movie. So I know which ones I'd like to see where, but some I own, some I don't. So. It wouldn't bother me as long as they did it well. If they, you know, if any movie that someone makes of mine and, and 
of my work and, and, and I don't have any say in it, it comes out crappy, I'm not going to like, you know. But I think every author feels that way. And thank God for George Martin because George is actually very, very heavily involved in Game of Thrones and it's the highest rated show on TV. So almost single-handedly he's reminding Hollywood and television that the authors do matter actually. Because generally speaking, they, they work real hard to keep authors off the set. Because they want to do what they want to do. Right? I mean, that's always been the way it is. Um, but I think George is changing that paradigm a little bit. We all hope he is. I know Terry's very heavily involved in the Shannara story. Um, we've talked about it. He's, he, they, he gets a read-through on everything. And he's really thrilled with what he's seen. I mean, I, I got this very excited email from him. He's like, the writing's really good in this. And that's, he's like, I, can, I could hear him in the email, I could hear him breathing a sigh of relief, you know, because it's your, it's your biggest fear and your biggest hope all in one. Because of course I'd like to have a movie or I'd like to have a video game or I'd like, you know, I mean, who wouldn't? Um, they reach so many more people. I mean, I'm, I'm still dancing around that Ice-T and Will Wheaton and Weird Al and Felicia and uh, Felicia Day and Sean Astin and Michael Chiklis and all these other people just read the drift stories. And then someone said to me, I don't know if this is true anymore, maybe someone here or not. Someone here might be able to confirm it, but somebody put on my board and Facebook page and said, um, he was listening to Sirius XM and Howard Stern did a drift reading as a promotion for the Audible book. Anyone know anything about that? Shelly, do you know anything about that? <laughs> if you get something, let me know, will you? So, well, apparently he did a promotion for it, and they said he was saying Drizzy, which. Oh, there it is. So apparently Howard Stern said Drizzy. That's pretty cool. So it's, to me, it's all a game, right? To me, I'm just having fun at this point. So this is all like a game to me, you know? It's like people ask me, what do you think when you see one of your characters in, in a video game? Does it get you angry? You know, as a player playing it? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I was playing World of Warcraft, and I had a character named... Um, who, which character was I using at the time? I, I was using Bruno, and he had two R's. Just good use. Bruno wouldn't get through the name checker. So I had Bruno with two R's on the end. And I went, I went in the pickup group, because this was near the end of Warcraft, and they ran out of ideas, and PvE was no fun anymore. And I went in the pickup group, and it was led by someone playing a character named Denovendil, the elf from the Lone Drow and all that. And I, I get in there, and we're, we're in, I don't remember, we were one of the troll dungeons, but anyway, we're, we're, we got, had to run some ways before it opened, we had to have the first thing all set up before we really started the dungeon. And I get this private message, Salvatore for the win, right? And so I take back, what? It's Salvatore. And I'm like, who? And they said, our character names, Ari Salvatore. And I'm like... Oh, I just put this together. Is this a character from a book? <laughs> and so I was playing with this guy or girl or whatever for just just teasing back and forth for like. And then we were getting ready to start, and so I said, "All right, I'm going to tell you. This is this is Bob Salvatore, and thank you. That's really cool that you're using my character." She came back and said, "No, you're not." <laughs> 
And I said, no, really, I, I love Warcraft. I, I play all the time. This was a few years ago. And um, I play all the time. And, and this is Bob Salvatore. And she started, like, sending me test questions. And some of the books. Oh, yeah? Well, who was this character? And blah, 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 blah. And some of them were really easy. But other ones were, like, obscure characters from, like, the Halfling's Gem or something, right? Now, I wrote the Halfling's Gem in 1989, okay? I don't reread it all the time. Because I'm too busy. And so, I thought I had her convinced and we were all cool and we could just go do the dungeon. Meanwhile, everyone's getting mad, right? What's, what's going on? What's going on? Let's go. Let's go. What's going on? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. She's a group leader. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And, okay, well, what was the name of the character that Entreri killed on the hillside in Streams of Silver? It begins with a J. I remember it began with a J. And... The next thing I know, they booted me out of the group. <laughs> and so I put that up on a Reddit, that story, and then I got an email. That was me. That was really you? <laughs> I love that stuff. I was playing EverQuest, and I was playing Quint. Well, Thibbledorf. And when he got to level 20, it was going to be Thibbledorf Quint, right? So I'm playing Thibbledorf. And I come running out of Kaladim, and I made a level, and I go back in and get my level up, and I come running. This was back in the old days when making a level took you a while, even at first level. I mean, this was old EverQuest, where you play for six months and you're fifth level, or whatever. So I go back in, and I make a level, and I come out, and I see a guy out there named Bruner. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. So I start just shouting, you know, and shout. The red text shows up on the thing. Me king! And this poor guy is like first level and he's killing snakes. And of course it takes him like five hits to hit the thing and maybe three hits to kill it, right? And so he's fighting the snake and I run up, my king! And me king! And I run up and whack! I kill him. <laughs> so I kill Steel, right? And he's like, cut it out! <laughs> and I'm like, me king, I will protect you! And like, get away from me! And it, I chased him. I chased him from the mountains all the way to like Greater Fadar. He's, get away from me! I'll report you! And I'm like, be king, I'll save you! Right? Now I'm shouting it out on the server. And the next thing I know, one of the GMs shows up. And just to give you a hint that I knew I was okay, the GM's name was Rumble Tummy. I knew all the guys from Sony by this point. I had been playing for years, right? Bob, what are you doing? I'm like, you're king! And he's like, Bob, it's not funny anymore. I said, make him milk and cookies. He'll be happy. Leave him alone, Bob. Are you going to ban me, really? Are you going to ban me, really? He's like, Bob, knock it off. <laughs> All right. And I went back and made another level. <laughs> so, if you can't have fun with it, what's the point, right? Have a sense of humor. <laughs> EverQuest was my game. I love that game. Who's got a question for me? Ah, two hands, three hands. We're starting to roll. Wait a minute. Um, when you have those run-ins on online games where people name their characters after characters in their stories, do you try to role-play with them? Do they try to role-play back as that character? Nobody role-plays in online games. Where have you been? <laughs> I went to the online, I went to the role-playing server on EverQuest. The only reason people were there is because you could trade no-drop items. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anybody role play. Unless they're playing someone who's the first guy to get the loot and run. I see that a lot. Um, yeah. Well, you are luckier than I can. No, I am. I, um, 
with the only time I really ever interacted, first of all, I don't like advertise I'm playing, except once in a while I'll tell someone. That's you know that's just for giggles. It depends on the mood I'm in. So um, I don't really. If someone's playing a character with one of my characters' names, I just think that's cool, and I just let it go at that. You know, I don't I don't really do that. Um, made a lot of friends in EverQuest. I, I actually left Warcraft because I just couldn't deal with the chat anymore. Because there was usually one or two people just being idiots, and they just wouldn't shut up in the trade channel or whatever, and then everybody's responding to me. Put them on the ignore, but everybody's still responding. I'm like, all right, enough. I, I don't need this anymore. And I just walked away. But, um, yeah, no, I, I've, it's rare to see someone who's, like, role-playing. So I, I applaud you because they, they just don't. Um, I made a lot, like I said, I made a lot of friends, though, playing the games. Uh, waiting for boats and EverQuest. You, EverQuest was like Facebook. I mean, it was it was social media until social media came out, and then nobody wanted to wait 15 minutes for a boat anymore because there was no reason to when they're on their Facebook page on the on the other screen, right? <sighs> but and, and again, like I said, I, I try not to like give away who I am because I it can cause problems um, for the guys who are in the group with me or whatever, you know. So I was I was once playing a character named Camariel. This was my this was my greatest moment in MMO, or one of my two. So I'm playing Camariel. He's a dark elf mage because he can't play a psionicist, so he played a mage. And I I had built him up to like I don't thirtieth level or whatever. He was doing great. I mean I, I really loved playing the wizard in, in EverQuest. And I had been hunting for the ancient Cyclops. Who played EverQuest? Do we have any EverQuest players in here? See, not enough. You guys missed so much. Am I right? Wasn't it like the best game ever? You had to camp the ancient Cyclops. To get, you would kill him, you get the ring of the ancients, you'd go turn it in, you'd get your journeyman's boots. And the journeyman's boots made you run faster than the monsters, which is really important in EverQuest, because when you died, you would lose experience. And you would have to run naked back to your body and somehow get your stuff back. So EverQuest was not a Care Bear game at all. I mean, there were consequences to losing, which I love, by the way. So, I'm playing Camariel and I'm camping the ancient Cyclops. And there's this other guy who's the same level, and he's camping too. We're in this desert. And we became friends, just sitting there talking to each other back and forth, you know, typing to each other back and forth while we're, you know, killing the occasional whatever that shows up that's worth killing in the desert. And finally, I got the ancient Cyclops and I got my journeyman's boots. And I thought no more of it. And about a month and a half later, I teleported back into South Row and I'm running through the oasis. To the oasis, and I and I see he's in the zone because you can do a show all in the zone. And I see that this guy, who's, you know, I, I like this guy. We 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 had a lot of nice conversations, just camping bro every night. Um, and I see he's in the zone. I'm like, hey, you still you still hunting that thing? Yeah, how you doing? You know, we're catching up. You know, have you been to this place? You know, this new zone, whatever. You know, we're just catching up, having our a little chat, whatever. And I run over this dune, and as I come over the dune, there's the ancient cyclops, right in front of me. And I'm higher level now. And I'm like, I got it, I got it, get over here. You know, I do trying to give him a, a group invite. The thing attacks me, so I have to kill it. So I killed it, but I didn't loot it. So the Ring of the Ancients is sitting on this thing. And this guy who's been waiting three months is gonna get the Ring of the Ancients. And I'm like, I'm holding it for you, get over here. And I'm kneeling, you know, a character kneels down and I'm holding it so somebody can't come running by and take it. 
And I go, okay, when I get up, take it. I get up, and another guy comes running right by, boom, ninja loots it, and goes running off. And he starts taunting us in chat. And I'm like, you jerk. Give that back now. And he's like, oh, you know, and he's swearing at me and everything. And I'm like, I'm going to report you. And he goes, go ahead, report me. I don't care. And he, he logged off. He probably had three accounts, ten characters, so it would never be caught. And nothing would happen to him. And the other guy was bummed, but he was cool, whatever. I was really mad. But put it aside. So I did what I always do when somebody pulled something like that. I wrote his name on a sticky and I taped it to the side of my computer. <laughs> oh, yeah. So maybe four or five months later, I'm in Greater Fader. And I hear, can someone uh, translocate me to North Carolina? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Hit enter, look at the paper, look at the name, look at the paper. Okay. So he comes up to me, and he's like, cool, how much you want for this? And I'm like, no, I do it for free, no problem. And I cast the spell. Nobody ever reads the spells. Camarillo <laughs> wants to translate you to, to... Nobody ever reads that, they just hit accept. So he disappears. But five seconds later, I get a tell. Holy crap, come get me! What do you mean? This isn't North Carolina. You sent me to Kazakh Fool. Really bad place. <laughs> and, uh, and remember, if you die in EverQuest, you've got to find some way to go get your body back. And it's not easy. Kazakh Fool is one, of the, is one of the strange dungeons in EverQuest because you don't teleport in at the beginning of the dungeon like most, where you can just step out. You're right in the middle of it. And they had just redone Kazakh Fool to make it like a raid-level dungeon. <laughs> Come get me! Oh, you, where are you? You you hit the wrong button. I'm in Kazakh. Come get me! And I'm like, oh, I'm not going there. That's a bad place. <laughs> and he kept going. He kept going. I go. I go. Listen, jerk. I know you've got journeyman's boots because you stole the ring from me. Run out. <laughs> we were in Kazakh through with a group about three weeks later, and his body was still there. <laughs> You put that sticky away. <laughs> that was a great game. And in fact, when I was working on 38 Studios, one of the fights that I had the whole time we were trying to develop the game was quit being afraid of people getting mad at you on message boards. Because a lot of the guys at 38 Studios had come from custom service. Like most people in the game industry, you start either quality assurance or custom service. And so they had heard all the complaints, and they had to fix it when people, you know, had um, lag death or whatever. And, and, and I'm like, what's happened to MMOs, and, and this is on steroids now, is you keep trying to take out all the grief, right? You can't train people with monsters. In the old MMOs, you used to go running out with the entire zone of monsters chasing you. And you'd zone out as some other guy's zoning in. And so you go and you no, don't go. Oh, that's good. He's not. <laughs> and he would appear in the zone, and uh oh, boom, he's dead, right? And, and this was what made the game like insanely fun. <laughs> and so they, they but the, you know, then they would get complaints about it. My character died. I don't want to lose that experience. Give me back my experience. You know that wasn't fair. And my answer, if I was a customer service guy, would be tough. <laughs> Go get your experience back. You're an adventurer, not a whiny baby. Tough. 
Because when there's, see, when there's nothing left to lose, when you take all the consequences of losing out, you also take out the sense of accomplishment from winning. All you got to do is read a message board in World of Warcraft, and if you've got the right amount of healing, the right amount of DPS, and the right amount of tanking gear, you can beat anybody. You stand here. Cast this spell every four seconds. You stand here. When the, when the tank gets to this level, cast your spell and heal them. That's how they are. You can't lose. That's not fun. And so this was the fight we had over. I wanted corpse runs. Some of my best stories in EverQuest are trying to get my body back. <laughs> you can't do that. People get really mad. And they're like, I don't care. They're mad for the minute, but that's what they're going to remember. I lost. I always lost those fights. And so, yeah, I haven't played an MMO since 38 Studios collapsed. And if I do, it may be on one of the, um, the simulators that play old school EverQuest. Even, but the, the, the UI is so old, it's just not that much fun anymore, you know? But EverQuest was a game of, of amazing highs and really bad lows. And that's what I loved about it. And the other games just don't seem to have that. So... That's my EverQuest rant. I love that world. Maybe it's just because it was my first MMO. <laughs> but it was good. Who's got a question? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, will we ever see the return of Gary Ledger? And do, can you pronounce uh, Kelsey's full name? Kelsey. No, it's a full name. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Kelsen Ellen Elviel that was my that was my homage to stupid elf names. <laughs> so they called him Kelsey and really ticked him off. And of course, the guy calling him Kelsey was a leprechaun named Mickey McMickey. <laughs> that I love that series. That series was really an autobiographical series for me, except I was kidnapped by a hobbit. No, I'm not even kidding. Let me explain. I, I, when I was a kid, I had this great collection of Charlie Brown books, and I used to read all the time. I was a reader. I was I would read all these Snoopy books. I was like really into reading and writing, creative, and using my imagination and going away to all these crazy adventures, Wind in the Willows, and all these other things. And then through school, it beat the love of reading and writing out of me. It became a job. You know, we'd get these books and they'd have a paragraph of Faulkner, and you had to analyze that paragraph. And what do you think of Faulkner? I think he wrote a paragraph. <laughs> and I just, I just felt, felt to me that writing and reading were, were work. They weren't fun anymore. So I started college as a math major. And then for my freshman year, in my freshman year, Christmas, my sister gave me uh, four books for Christmas. But I wanted money because I had a car that kept breaking down. But she gave me books. So I just threw them aside and didn't think anything of them. But a couple of months later, we had this massive blizzard and we were all housebound for a week and the school shut down and you couldn't go anywhere. There were no roads. You really could not leave the house. But I did leave the house. I went to Middle Earth with a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins and then his nephew Frodo. And I remembered. I remembered all of that. And so I was kidnapped by a hobbit. It changed my life right on the spot. I immediately went out and started reading every fantasy book I could get my hands on. And in 1977, 78, there weren't a lot of fantasy books. There was... Sword of Shannon had just come out, so I got it Terry Brooks. Then uh, Lloyd Farrell's Bane, Stephen Donaldson's great book came out. And then you had like Fritz Leiber's Fafford and Grey Mouser series, which I think probably had the most influence on me 
from a writing standpoint because I really love buddy fantasy. And Fafford and Grey Mouser is like the greatest buddy fantasy ever written. I just love it. And Roger Zelazny and Michael Moorcock and Anne McCaffrey. But that was about it. And there really wasn't that many books. And when I ran out of books to read, I wrote one. And that was like, if you look at the end of that series, when Mickey says to Gary, you know, keep those, keep, keep the lines open, you know, fairies fading, keep the lines open to your world. Um, that, that's really what I feel like I'm doing. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm reminding people, go use your imagination. Escapism is not a bad word. Um, you know, that series that I got, the Ballantines, the white Ballantine slipcase version of The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, what, there was a, um, the prelude to the foreword to those books was written by Peter S. Beagle. And when you get home, or whatever, when you get some time, Google Peter S. Beagle, uh, The Hobbit Forward, The Lord of the Rings Forward, and read that one page that Peter Beagle, who's an amazing writer, by the way, wrote about Tolkien. And he talks about what Tolkien did and how he accomplished what he did. And, and it's just brilliant. When I read that, I knew. That was the first thing I read, obviously, when I opened the book. And I read that and I went, wait a minute. Because, you know, he says things like, we are raised to um, praise all the wrong people. You know, uh, conquerors bearing crosses and thieves carrying flags. You know, let's praise this guy who gave us imagination, that type of thing. It's, it's a brilliant essay. And then the books, of course, are my favorite books. The, the Hobbit's, like, still my favorite book ever. Which is why I didn't like the movies. <laughs> no, it's, I understand why he did what he did, but I wanted a charming children's story because that's what The Hobbit is. Um, and so when I wrote The Woods Out Back, that, you know, that was me. I was working in that plastics factory and I was playing on those softball teams and I used to cross the cemetery to get home from work for lunch and I had The Woods Out Back where I'd read The Lord of the Rings and... And the woods out back are now like the tree out back because of all the development, but um, that was me. So I loved it. I loved writing that series. With Gino Hammerthrow, the dwarf. <laughs> Got my son. Who else has a question for me? Yes. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what my schedule is going to bring. I mean, I know I have one more book that I am, I have one more book under contract to write. That's all I know. I don't know what's next. Um, another Kickstarter for Demon Wars. Maybe someone will approach me for a screenplay for The Woods Out Back. Maybe um, The Highwayman gets a hit. Maybe I go back to Demon Wars and do a book after Immortalis. Maybe, you know, I, I don't know. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's really a nice thing not knowing. I, I wouldn't avoid going back to that series. I loved writing. I had a lot of fun writing that series. Um, but I don't know. And that's the way I like it. The other question? How much of writing is, you know, set in structure and, I guess, you know, technical? As opposed to how much of it is just, like, having fun with it? Well, in English 101, <laughs> they teach you the rules of the English language. In English 1001, if you ever get that far, what you come to understand is that the tools are, I mean the rules are really just tools of the English language. Um, a semicolon and a dash do the same thing in a sentence. 
but they have a different visual effect on the reader. Okay? Sentence structure is critical because if all of your sentences are structured the same way, the monotony of reading it will kill someone, <laughs> including you. Um, I give you a perfect example. In Writing 101, one of the cardinal rules of writing is the road to hell is paved with adverbs. And what they mean by that is if you're writing dialogue, right? First of all, you're attributing the dialogue so you're making your first mistake. Because good dialogue, the reader should know who's talking. And then the second thing, if you're saying he said slyly or she said sarcastically um, or he replied whatever adverb you want to put in, you're failing because the words of the reply and the scene that you've already set should tell the reader. Well, here's some problems with that. Now, people are different now than they were in 1970. And they were different in 1970 than they were in 1930. And they were different in 1930 than they were in 1830. Okay? And what I mean by that is the way people take in information has changed. Okay? So, but the rules, English 101 hasn't changed. Most of, I realized, that, I realized probably around the mid-90s that most of my readers do most of their reading on message boards. In the mid-90s, that's where... Well, what, is, what does a message board do? Everything is... Every line of dialogue is attributed to someone. Right? The other thing a message board does is people use adverbs. They call them emoticons. Those are adverbs. The other thing is most people don't get sarcasm anymore. Because they don't talk face-to-face -face with people. You can't learn sarcasm with your face on the computer screen. Sarcasm is conveyed by an eyebrow, the tilt of the head, the inflection of the voice. You can't do that if you're looking at a computer. Which is why they use emoticons, because if they don't, they have flame wars. Right? <laughs> How dare you say that to me? I was just kidding. You didn't say JK. You know? <laughs> I just put a virus on your computer. Um, it, it's, I'm going to thrash you, or thwap you, or whatever they do. I don't know. So I realized then that if I'm not attributing dialogue, I'm confusing my readers. Because they're not sophisticated in that way anymore. And if I'm not using adverbs, I'm shortchanging my readers. I mean, one of the biggest things that's happening now is the new change goes for. And by the way, that's not a put-down of people reading today. It's a reality of the way people absorb information today. People today get so much more information that they absorb all the time, all the time, all the time. You know, everything that you're on, Twitter, Facebook, Google, whatever, you're getting information, 24-hour news channels, 500 TV channels, right? Constant information being thrown at you. But they absorb it differently. So I'm not making a value judgment here of which way is better. I'm saying that if you're smart, you adapt. If you don't adapt, you die. Or are unemployed. <laughs> so the thing I'm seeing now is what people have lost. And this is scary to me, is the concept of the unreliable narrator. And they lose, I think one of the reasons people lose that is because there's so much out there they never get challenged in their viewpoints. 
Because you can always find somebody that's saying something that you go, yeah, that's right. And you'll keep going back to that person. Whether it's an ideological, political question, or it's something you believe about GMOs, or it's something you believe about vaccinations, or whatever you want to throw up there, right? You can find someone that you know is speaking the truth because that's what you think. So instead of being challenged and beginning to understand that maybe this isn't the truth, maybe there's more to this story, people settle into their little cocoons. And I think in the, for readers, what's reflected is the concept of unreliable narrator. And a perfect example of that just happened in a book where Caddy Bree told Dritz flat out, we were wrong, you were wrong, Bruno was wrong, Orcs are evil. Goblins are evil. There's no exceptions to the rule. Myleki says kill them all. I would kill the babies if I could find them. They are evil. They are irredeemable. End of story. I got so many e emails saying, how can you say this after this? I read Dark Mirror and how can you say this? And blah, 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 blah. And I said, I didn't say it. Caddy Breed did. <laughs> well, what does that mean? Maybe she's wrong. Or maybe she's not. That's the thing I think we're losing now. And that scares the hell out of me. Losing the, the ability to detect sarcasm can get you punched in the face. Losing the ability to understand the concept that maybe there's another point of view or that somebody's saying something that isn't true can get us all punched in the face. So, there's my rant. Writing for me is a journey. This, when I, say, when people, I say this to my readers all the time. I say, thank you for coming on my journey with me. Because that's the way I feel about it. Writing is my way of making sense of the world. I get great pleasure when I write a scene that reveals something to me about myself. I write to learn what I already know. Okay? Um, you have to understand the rules of English enough, of the, enough to realize what tools you have so that you can have varied sentence structure. So you know when a semicolon is a better option than a dash. And I don't have all the answers, and everybody does it differently. But to develop your own style, you have to understand those things. You have to understand, what it, you have to understand the effect a two-word paragraph has on a scene. People say, I love your fight scenes. How do you write your fight scenes? I shorten the sentences. <laughs> what? I shorten the sentences. <coughs> what do you mean? As I go through and I look for the verb to be and I get rid of it. No was, no were, no been, have been, no be. It's all action verbs. And I shorten the sentences. And I shorten the paragraphs. And as the fight gets crazier, I shorten them more. And I just do that by instinct because I'm watching the fight. My blood's starting to boil. And my, I'm getting all, the adrenaline's starting to pump. And I'm, no, that sentence is too long. I wonder what happens next, right? And so... But because I know the rules and understand the tools, I can get away with that. So it's a combination of both. You can't just put 10,000 words down on a paper and use the green lines in the grammar checker and have a novel. Because the way you write things will affect the way people read things. And, I mean, I don't have all the answers. It's also why different people like different books, right? Some people love my books, some people hate my books. Some people love this guy's books, some people hate this guy's books. A big part of that is because everybody absorbs information in a different way. And how much is the reader going to participate? Writing no novels are what you call a cold medium. I'm a Marshall McLuhan believer, true believer. Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called The Media is the Message. And what McLuhan meant was that 
the way information is presented to people will have an effect on how they take it in. If you watch a movie, a movie is a very hot medium. All you have to do is sit there. It will give you the music, it will give you the visuals, it will give you the dialogue, it will set the mood, it will, it will take you on a journey. Television is a little cooler because there's so many different choices and so many different things going on and it has limitations that the movie doesn't have because of budget, usually. When you get to novels, you're in a very cold medium. Because when I say something to you, what I'm really trying to do is light up your brain so that you're seeing it. And now you're filling in the pictures. I, I love it when people say to me, you know, oh man, you know, the way you described that dragon, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there laughing because I know what I described. I said, it's a dragon. That's about it. <laughs> See, Tolkien had a much higher, harder job than I did. Because when Tolkien, it's like, it's like when Melville wrote Moby Dick, right? When Melville wrote Moby Dick, nobody knew what a whale looked like, really, except the people that lived in Gloucester and went hunting them. His audience that lived in, you know, Missouri and stuff, they, they weren't going to see a whale. And they didn't have an internet to go look one up. And they probably didn't have a, a books with pictures of whales in them. They didn't know what a whale looked like or how big it was or how you did. So he had to describe these whales in great detail. Tolkien had to do the same thing with dragons. Because when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, who was reading about dragons, right? Um, now all writer of fantasy has to do is say dragon and the reader knows exactly, exactly what he's talking about. And you can put some you can put some color things on it, and you know these green scales or whatever. You can make little adjustments, but generally, when you say elf or dwarf or dragon or any of the other tropes, the reader already knows what you're talking about. So that makes it easier and harder at the same time. Easier because now they've got the image in their head, and harder because now you have to make that image memorable. And the way you do that is how is the character seeing the dragon? Remember the movie Dragon Slayer? One of the greatest movies ever. Peter McNichol played Galen Bradwarden, right? That's why in Demon Wars I have a centaur named Bradwarden, is because I love Peter McNichol's character in that movie. And there's one scene in that movie where the priest, they're sacrificing this woman, and the priest comes out to rescue her, and then you see the priest, and he's yelling at them, get back, he's yelling at them, and he's scolding them, and you just see from the dragon's point of view, this, this, here's the priest, and you just see this dragon head coming up behind the priest, looking down at him. It's like one of the best scenes ever in a fantasy movie. The priest turns around and he says, Foul beast, get ye down! And then you see fire. And the priest is like, charging. It's like, awesome, yes. Um, though, so you see it through the priest. You see it through the dragon's eyes. You see this priest saying, Get away from this, you people, blah, 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 blah. You see the dragon like, what is this punk doing, right? And then you see it from the priest's eyes. And it just evokes such emotion. And that's what you try and do in the book. So what is it? Is it is it mechanics or is it is it just passion? It's passion. But you have to know the mechanics. If you've got a passion for speed and you try and build a car and you don't know the mechanics, you're gonna kill yourself. <laughs> I forgot to put the brakes in. How do you turn this thing? <laughs> right? It's the same thing. So you gotta know the mechanics and then you gotta have the passion. And then you gotta get lucky. Really lucky. Yes. You've written a lot of books, obviously. Um, Fifty-five, I think. I started writing when I was one, one a year, I'm 55. With all the things you went through, I mean, I know you probably have young kids when you were writing, a lot of them, and I have a wife, um, so she demands time. Long-suffering um, wife, yes. <laughs> um, and then the 
just the demands placed on you by your editor and publishers, and then what, what happened with the fourth edition and the trilogy around there, and you could tell kind of the, the tone of the books, you were not so happy with the way that was handled. How did you, how did you retain your passion for writing? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I know it's such a, a heavy burden that's been placed upon my shoulders. Poor me. Pity me. Throw me money or something. <laughs> to pay my way through college, I would go to my classes during the day. I would leave work and I would go to the plastics factory and work for four hours. And then I would leave the plastics factory and I'd go to the nightclub for six o'clock and I would clean the nightclub from the night before. And that included really disgusting bathrooms. And then I would go take a quick shower at the club, throw on my polo shirt that had the club's name on it, and I worked as a bouncer until about 2 in the morning. And then I would go home, and I would go to bed, and I would get up at 7 or whatever, and I would go to school the next day. When I first got married, I was working 11 to 7 because we needed the money and I needed the shift differential. But I wasn't working 11 to 7. I was working 10 to noon because they gave me a job and a half. They gave me a second job, essentially. I would come home after that shift, and I would hand my keys to my wife. We had to go to work, and I would take care of our kids. And the both of us were exhausted, but we worked together. This is cake. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it, it's emotionally draining. It's hard work. It wears you out. But everybody works hard. And there's nothing wrong with working hard. Um, how do I retain my passion for it? This is my journey through life. This is how I make sense of the world. This is how I answer all the questions that everybody has. But I find ways to answer them. Because I beat the crap out of my characters. Right? Um, I always said I'll keep doing this as long as it's fun and as long as people want to read it. I'll keep doing it even if people don't want to read it. I just won't publish it. It's how I live. It's what I do. I tell people, say, I want to be a writer. I say, you want to be a writer or you want to be published? What's the difference? Well, you're going to have to learn the difference. And this is what I write. When people say, what advice do you have for a young writer? I write it in every book just about it. I say, if you can quit, quit. And if you can't quit, you're a writer. Because a writer is someone that has stories clawing at the inside of his or her skin, wanting to get out. And you'll never be happy. If you're a writer, you'll never be happy unless those stories get out. And what you'll find once those stories get out is there are a lot more in there. And you'll never be happy until you keep exploring them. It's the way you live. It's the way you make your life. This is, I retired in 1990. I, I quit my job at Genred as a financial analyst in June of 1990. Um, and now I'm just living. And this is part of my living. And if you're a writer, it has to be. And sure, there are a million reasons not to write today. It's a beautiful day. i got a convertible sitting in the garage. I'm going for a ride. I want to go to the beach. Um, you know, there are a million reasons to not go to the gym when you should be going to the gym. There are a million reasons not to be saying hi to your mom or dad when you should be saying hi to your mom and dad. Right? There are a million reasons to do the things you, you don't want to do, but if you want to do them, you will. I want to write. It's what I do. It's how I make sense of the world. It's how I make... I, I, it's, it's pleasure. It's, it's a pain in the ass, too. I mean, I'm not gonna, don't get me wrong. There are times when you just don't want to do it, but you're a professional, and so you do it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm having more fun now, and I'm, I'm, I'm writing, I did like 3,000 words on the plane from Boston to Indy. You know, I'm having more fun now with it. Get to do Kickstarters with my kids, get to work with my son on three books and comic books. That, that's a joy. So, yeah, it, it's still there.
It's still there. When it's not there, I'll stop. It's that simple. It's not there, I'll stop. I'm nearing retirement age. But since I'm not working, I won't retire. <laughs> yes? Yeah, the present day, the state of the world right now. I, I, if, if I weren't writing fantasy, and I, I would probably be writing like commentary um, right now. Um, but I won't because I write fantasy. And you just can't make jumps like that. Well, I meant like in some other fantasy world. Right now, our world. Yeah. That's what it seems like. <laughs> That's what it seems like to me. Um, other than that, nah. I mean, to me, there's so many, there's, there's a lot more similarities in fantasy worlds than there are differences. I'm very happy in the realms. I love the world I built with Demon Wars. Um, I love the world of fairy, right? I've got that. And if I want to write in a different world, I will. Um, you know, I wrote Star Wars, a couple of Star Wars books. And Disney saved me. He's back. Stop that. <laughs> Chewie is a Disney princess. Yeah, so if I had it to do all over again, I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> right now, the only thing I'd trade my job for is pitching at Fenway, and I'm way too old. and was never good enough. <laughs> yeah. Yes? How many hours do you think you spend a day writing? I spend 24 hours a day writing and three hours a day tops at the computer. Because when I'm writing a book, it never leaves my mind. I go to bed with it. I wake up in the middle of the night with it. I wake up in the morning with it. I'm driving my car, and Bob, you missed the turn. <laughs> Bob, you missed the turn. <laughs> I'm, you know, Diane will be talking to me and say, um, yeah, okay, you haven't heard the word I've said for the last hour. Get this battle scene in my head. <laughs> it's, it's bad. Yeah. So it's always with you. It's a curse. I mean, writing is a blessing and a curse. A blessing because you get to take these journeys as a curse because you can't get off the boat. Right? Uh, but actually sitting down typing, I, I probably spend as much time answering Facebook PMs and fan uh, emails and as I do writing now. And that may change as I get older and more people have to stop answering those PMs. Sorry. But um, three hours maybe? Unless I'm on a plane, because I'm terrified of flying, so the way I get through it is I open the computer, I put the headphones with John Suri and George Winston on, and I go away to wherever I'm writing, and I forget I'm on a plane. See, it works. And then we land, and you got to shut the computer. Why? Because we're landing. Landing? Oh, crap, I'm in a plane. Shut the computer. <laughs> it's, um, then I can write, like, I, I can do a book on the way to Hawaii. <laughs> it's 12 hours. I can do a book. <laughs> I think if Wizards really wanted me to speed up, they should just put me on planes and fly me. <laughs> How many books did Bob do this week? Seven. It's really cool. Are they any good? No, there's fear in every one. <laughs> I think he's figured this out. <laughs> yeah. Ow. Yeah, the other question. <laughs> the questioner, evil Amazon. Um, portraying the fight between Amazon and the company like Hatchet or Bertelsmann or uh, 
you know, penguin or whatever as, as like the, the little store fighting the giant. Yeah, they're both giants. Yeah. Um, I think they're both fighting, I think they're both wrong, and I think the authors are the ones getting crushed in the, in the basis. Perfectly honest with you, what we're seeing now with Amazon is the natural evolution of what the publishers started back in the early 90s when they started giving huge discounts to store like Barnes & Noble. So Barnes & Noble could then destroy the independent booksellers. And the independent booksellers went away and then Walmart came in and destroyed Borders and almost killed Barnes & Noble. And now Amazon's coming in and dominating the ebook market and all of that. And, it, it, and the, the contract that writers get is the con same contract that writers used to get in 1910, okay, where you get this percentage of the book. And the reason you get this percentage of the book, you get 15% of the hardcover or 10% of the paperback if you're lucky. The reason you get that is because, well, you know, we have to print 100,000 books to sell 40,000 because it was so inefficient, the presses were inefficient, the bookstores were inefficient, the inventory was inefficient. So we have to print 100,000 books to sell 40,000, we have to mulch 60,000 books and eat that cost. We have to have a sales force of 300 people because there are 10,000 independent bookstores in the country. Okay, now you make three phone calls, you've sold 95% of the books, right? Now you print exactly the number of books you want to get for your print run, and you're probably going to get this much in returns, and then you'll never have more returns because you're only printing on demand from that point forward, essentially. So, but the author never, they, they never changed to the author. And I have to say, Wizards is better than most of the pub, almost all of the publishers with some of these things. For example, publishers call Audible, right? They call up Audible and they say, I've got this great book by Bob Salvatore to sell you. And Audible says, cool, and we'll give you this percentage. And the, the publisher gets that percentage, and they've been giving the authors 15 to 25% of the percentage they got from Audible. And I go, wait a minute, why is your phone call worth more than six months it took me to write that damn book? Well, there's a lot of support that goes into it. No, you're full of crap. You're taking my money. So there's enough anger. See, I'm, I'm getting animated here. The people have been left out of this whole thing of the authors. Because you've got these giant corporations fighting, they've got batteries of lawyers, they've got batteries of accountants, and instead of being your partner on your journey, it seems like an awful lot of them want to make sure that they keep as much of your money as they can. Okay? And it's just wrong. So Amazon comes along and they say, hey look, you can self-publish. And this is really cool. Except the publishers used to, used to provide an incredibly important ser service to the readers. They weren't always right, they were often wrong. Doom was rejected 13 times. But what the publishers served as was the hopper. Because you've got all, especially now with word processors and grammar checkers and dragon, uh, you know, dragon, whatever it's called, that'll take, you can talk and it'll make a book for you, right? You've got hundreds of thousands of people writing books and the publishers used to be the ones, when it was tens of thousands of people, who used to say, these are the ones we think win the prize. And so they would willow it down, right? Willow it down. And then this is what came out, and it was readable. There was a manageable amount of books. And so now what, and what new authors are finding when they self-publish books is, I can self-publish. Okay, great, you self-published. How do you get through the noise of the other 300,000 people who self-published? So it's changing. My point is it's changing. With technology, it's changing, period. Is that good or bad? It is what it is. And, and it will fall out the way it falls out. And you just have to look out for yourself and change with it and adapt with it. I don't care if somebody wants to read an ebook. 
I don't care if somebody wants to listen to an audiobook. I care that the author is properly compensated for each piece of it because the author is the one creating it. So that's my fight, is, is the author. Um, what's going on between the publishers and Amazon? There's enough blame to go around. There's, they're, they're, he's right, he's right, he's wrong, he's wrong. She's right, she's right, she's wrong, she's wrong. It's the battle of corporations. And unfortunately, it seems like now we all of a sudden have decided in, in this country and without getting too political on you, but we've all, of a, all of a sudden we've decided in this country that antitrust is a nasty word. But that's what you have. Amazon's got like 90 plus percent of the ebook business. Um, that's not healthy. So, you know, to me, it's if you if you are an author and you're going to self-publish, or if you are an author and you're publishing with some other with some company. You've got to be really careful because the, the landscape is changing dramatically. Think about this. Authors get their books back in the old contracts. The old contract said to keep this book, the publisher had to keep it in print. Right? Keeping a book in print 25 years ago, when you had to do plates for printing presses, meant printing 10,000 copies of a book. So the publisher had to, every time that book was almost sold out, the publisher had to make this fairly sizable investment if they thought they could keep selling enough books to be worth the investment. And when they got to the point that they thought, well, you know, we're going to print 10,000 books, we're going to sell 1,000 of them, we're going to mulch 9,000. The number's just not there anymore. They would let the book go out of print. And six months later, the author would get the book back. So now the author is back in control of his or her IP, intellectual property, right? What does it take to keep a book in print now? The publisher goes to the printer and says, I need 10 copies of this book. Push the button, here's 10 copies. Or it's an ebook, it's in print. So, how does an author who creates something ever get control of that intellectual property ever again? It goes into a black hole, and the publisher is never going to let it go without a legal fight. It is what it is. Uh, ebooks themselves, I have no problem with ebooks. Ebooks have a better margin for the publisher and usually better money for the author. Uh, people want to read ebooks, great. People want to listen to audiobooks, I recommend it. I just said, hey, download it. <laughs> right? Um, but the business is changing dramatically. And however it plays out, if you're going to be an author, you better be paying attention to those changes. Take it all emotional on I'm going to write a character who's going to work for a publisher. Another one who'll work for a giant retailer. And then the dragon will kill them both. <laughs> yeah. I know you're busy. No, nah, I'm not busy. And I know Gino's probably busy. No, nah, he's not busy at all. <laughs> have you two ever talked about, like, I mean, I know you wrote three books, but have you ever talked about doing something else in that? And I know you've done some comic books, but... Comic books, if they come up, would probably do again. Gino loves writing comics. Gino doesn't want to be a fantasy author, really. He's got other things he wants to pursue. Although he does like doing this game and the Kickstarter, and he and I have talked very deeply about doing another Kickstarter. This year, I think we'll be, I'll be launching another Kickstarter. So, um, but I mean, 
he um, he liked telling the story. The only reason he did it was because he had a story he wanted to tell. He, he approaches writing a little differently than I do because I had a family to support and he just goes to Red Sox games and stuff and supports himself. I, I, I think he did a really amazing job with a lot of that yeah, stuff. I thought it was kind of funny when you said they were, they were young adult books. Well, that was the whole plan. Wizards wanted young adult books. Um, but the truth is that The Stone of Tomorrow, those three books, The Stowaway, The Shadow Mask, and Sentinel, um, those three books are Dritz books. They're every bit Dritz books as any other Dritz books I've ever done. And... Um, but they, you know, they were in the different section. And a lot of people haven't read them. And when I did and on May twentieth on my Facebook page, I put up this. Here's a logic. You know, here's the Dritz books, and I, I kind of put them all out there what I, in what I thought would be a logical reading order. And I include the Claire Quintet and the, and the Cell Swords. I don't know if I put the Claire Quintet. In. I think I did. And the, and the Stone of Tomorrow. And the next day, I got like thirty emails. What the hell is Stone of Tomorrow? I'm like, it's a Dritz book. Well, when does it take place? I said, it takes. To, that book takes place alongside the halfling's gem. You actually see the kid in the boat seeing this, what is that? A flaming chariot with a dwarf <laughs> coming down on a pirate ship. Cool, <laughs> right? Um, that was the one scene in that book I insisted on writing because I wanted to tell it from a different point of view. And uh, it was so much fun. So they're Dritz books, but most Dritz readers don't know. But whatever. <laughs> there are enough Dritz books. Yes. Um, everyone, can you end with Wubba Wubba story? Oh, come on. Who's heard Wubba Wubba? Yeah, All right. Hold <laughs> <laughs> on, oh, oh, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear that. Can you tell us another of your favorite gaming stories? Oh, okay, so now I'm a comedian. <laughs> um, I'll tell you a great gaming story, EverQuest gaming story. My, my nephew wanted to play a different character, but we were already... The characters we were using in this next iteration of our group were all like 25th, 30th level. And so he wanted to say, I want to play this. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know. Oh, I don't want to play this character. I don't want to play this anymore. I want to play the warrior or whatever. All right. So he starts a new character. Now, we've got these 50th level characters. That's when you could only go to 50 in the game. And I had Camariel, who had just hit level 50. And we were playing those on our own, Right. But we had a group that was like around 30th level, whatever. And we had, now DJ wanted to play a new character. So we were going to try and power level him up. So Jimmy Underdown would take his, his shaman, Barjan, and Jimmy Kelly would take Bolin, his cleric. And basically, Barjan would put a regeneration spell on DJ and put thorns on him. And then Bolin would, hit, would be healing him. And he could go out and they could have all these monsters coming at him that were like, Three levels higher than him, but 20 levels lower than those spells that they put on him. So the monsters would basically beat themselves to death on the thorn coat he was wearing while Bolin kept them alive. And all he had to do was hit the monster first and once to get the kill, give credit for the kill because of the way they had changed the game. So, okay, we can power level him up quickly. And I had Chimera, my mage. And in the first, first iteration of EverQuest... It was really hard to get spells as you started going up in levels. You actually had to find like these little, they, they looked like these little gray stones. And you had to find these different like items to put together to make a spell. And 50th level had two spells, right? It had Ice Comet and Firestorm. I think it was Firestorm or Fire something. Was, um, what was it called? 
Oh, now, see, now it's really bothering me. I told you I was old. Um, but anyway, you had this, it was a fireball type of spell that you would cast on yourself, an area of effect spell. And it took me weeks. This is what I was doing when we weren't playing in the group. I was taking Camarillo, trying to get the runes I needed to make the damn spells. I finally made the spells. Well, the problem with those spells in EverQuest is that if you ever cast it as a mage, you're dead. Because you will draw aggro from the monster who will run over and one-shot you. It's like, Ice Connor, ha ha ha, boom, you're dead. Just like that. So, but they were really cool spells, but I never got to use them. Anyway, I had that aside. Now, we're trying to level up DJ. So the place you go when a guy's like 18th or 17th or 18th level is the Estate of Unrest. And the Estate of Unrest is like still my favorite zone in that game. Because you go through this tunnel and you come out, and there's like these two walls, and they kind of break away, and there's these hedgerows. And this old Gothic mansion up in front of you. And outside you have these beetles. And when you kill them, they go, yeah! follow the back. And you have these ghoul-like things, and when you kill them, they do this kind of weird dance, right? They go, and they die. And you, have, and you have zombies, and when you kill them, they go, and they just fall. Right? So these are the yard trash. And the yard trash are the lowest level, easiest to kill monsters in the zone. So we took DJ in there, and he's pulling a bunch of beetles at himself, and they get the coats up, and... And then, 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 and I come in, and I'm just basically teleporting them around and talking, and, and he's, they're beating themselves to death on it, on the the thorns and everything. And DJ's gaining, you know, you hit bubbles, you had 20 bubbles at the bottom of your screen, and you know we're playing for an hour, and he fills a bubble, so he's 120th of the way to the next level. I told you this game was hard. So the thing I loved about it, unrest is you go inside. There were all these different. There were three floors. And they all had like different levels of monsters that got really bad. And down in the basement was the ghost. And he was like level 40. Everything outside was like level 18. So the ghost was really bad, okay? But not that bad, because now we're level 50. But we couldn't take DJ in there. Anyway, we hear train. Somebody in full caps. Train! Oh, crap. Basically what happened is that somebody went down and tried to kill the ghost and found out they couldn't kill the ghost and their whole party got wiped out by one guy who proceeded to run upstairs, run through every room because he couldn't find his way out of the house, run upstairs again, run through every room because he couldn't get out of the house, finally found the balcony, jumped off the balcony, and then out the door came the entire house. <laughs> now, the house was back and here's the tunnel. And between the house and the tunnel was maybe a football field and you had the hedgerows. There was a football field line of monsters. <laughs> and each one that came out was bigger than the one before. <laughs> with the ghost last. And we're like, now none of them are going to attack us because we're 50th level and monsters, the aggro range, they wouldn't go. But DJ's 18th level. And he can't get out of there. And we're like, DJ, just hide. Just hide. Go against the wall and stay there. Go against the wall and stay there. As soon as the guy zones out, all the monsters are going back. On their way back... Some poor guy off to the side, they saw him, and they all went, <laughs> and then they went back, and he's dead. Now they all see DJ. So Jimmy's guy is pumping these regeneration spells on him, and the, and the other Jimmy's like hitting him with heel after heel, he's got the thorns up, and they're like, DJ, run out of here. And I'm like, no, stay. And I start casting a spell, and so the bar comes up, and it's like this freaking long, and it's going, <laughs> Right? Like, stay! I'm like, stay, stay, stay! We don't have phones, we don't have uh, any audio thing where I'm like, stay, go, don't go! I can't keep healing them! And DJ's like, help me, help me, help me! Right? Like, no, 
you stand, stand, stand. And, and it's going, and it's going, and it's going. And then finally, he's got the entire zone around him. Now people are coming back in. They were fighting in the zone, and they're all back at the tunnel going, <laughs> you can't even see because it's just a sea of monsters. The beetles are biting him, and, the, and you can't. And then, and then that that firestorm, media swarm, or whatever the hell it was called, went off, and he's flamed, whoosh, and all of a sudden, my poor computer, because you've got sixty beetles going, and and everything, and. Then, and then it's like a Kurt Vonnegut book, right? After the slaughter, all that's left is the bird saying poo to wheat because it's just dead silence. And everything's dead. And we hear on the screen, ding, DJ makes a level. And, and nobody moved. Nobody in the zone moved for like five minutes and Jimmy types in, in, in zone chat, so everyone can see it. Impressive. <laughs> That's the only time I ever used the spell in the game. <laughs> I killed the whole damn zone. <laughs> I am a wizard. Fear me. <laughs> ah. That was pretty good. <laughs> ah. Who else got a question? Get me off these stories. So I got a friend up in Dillon, man, who could make it. He's in, uh, uh, currently in the military in Oak Harbor, Washington. He says his favorite author of all, of all time. Uh, he really liked the idea of your story becoming a movie or a TV series. And so he wanted to ask if, if there would be anyone that would play Dritz. Like you might have been thinking about this already. Who would you pick in either movie or TV series? See, that's a question I can't answer, and here's why. Now, there's a reason I can't answer it. Because if I gave you a name, and Hasbro decided to make a movie, and it got out what I had said, but they had picked somebody else, because I wouldn't have any say in casting, all that would happen is it would go all over the internet that that actor wasn't my first choice. The only thing I will say about any of that is that once upon, I can say this now because it wouldn't work anymore, but someone once said to me, Artemis and Trary, Edward Norton. I was like, what are you talking about? But then I saw American History X, and I was like, oh man, that would be like the coolest thing ever. Um, so I, I can't, I can never answer that question. I, I, do, I do know, but I won't tell you. Okay, if I'm going to do Wubba Wubba, I got time for maybe one or two more questions. Are you sure you, you got to, you've all heard of Wubba Wubba, right? Damn, damn you. What did I stop? It, it actually is. This is like the 500th time I've said it publicly. It's on like 17 different YouTube clips. And, yeah. yeah. Um, you come up with a ton of amazing magical items. Where do you get inspiration from? What do I want my characters to have? <laughs> I can prove it because I was playing Baldur's Gate. I don't have a good time playing Baldur's Gate. And I go running down by the woods, and I see this dark elf with two scimitars. Hey, help me kill these gnolls! And I'm like, 
Whoa, this guy looks familiar. <laughs> I am Jits the Warden. Really? Help me kill these gnolls. So I just watch them like slaughter the gnolls. And I go down there and I'm like, uh, I'm typing in every iteration I can think of of give me your stuff. <laughs> can I have your scimitar? <laughs> Trying to trade with him and he's just taking my things and he's not answering me and he's not doing anything. So I said, well, I gotta kill him. And then he wiped out my party. <laughs> so I like min-maxed everybody, gained levels, and went back to kill him again because I wanted his stuff. And he killed me again. And about three months later, I got this letter from a friend in Canada who said, I hope you can forgive me. I killed Dritz in Baldur's Gate. I really feel bad about it. Will you forgive me? And I said, Mike, I'll forgive you if you tell me how you did it. <laughs> and he did, and all of my characters were better outfitted after I killed him six times. But it... I don't know, magic is such a fun thing to play with in fantasy. To me, magic is... One of the, one of the biggest allures of fantasy is that it has something that science can't explain. Like, I'm a, I'm a scientist by nature. I believe in science. I grew up with Apollo... Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. But having something that... If science can explain everything, there's a real scary part of that. Right? In terms of faith. Okay? So having a world where science can't explain everything, is there's a real human comforting element. And so I like magic. And, and I've been a DM since 1980. And so I know how to do magic items for people. Because they, if I don't, they won't keep playing in my game. Um, so, you know, I, I pay attention to it and I care about it. And, and the thing I learned a long time ago is if you say, you know, he picked up a frost brand, the reader doesn't care. But if he picked up Icing Death, he got it in the Dragon's Lair, and he starts learning all the things he can do, people start caring about the scimitar, which didn't even have a name for about 10 books. I called it Icing Death after the Dragon. But anyway, you get the point. So just pay attention to it. It's something I care about, like fight scenes. Yes? So, how did you kill him? How did you kill what? How did you kill Drift? I never did. How did who kill Drift? Oh, summon monsters. He burned out like ten wands of monster summoning, surrounded them and just shot them with arrows. <laughs> That's how I beat the game once I learned that. It's easy. Get in the last room. Ooh, look at all the wolves. <laughs> you stupid AI, you will fight these wolves that can't even hit you, and I will shoot back here and kill you. <laughs> That's how he killed Drift. You're all gonna go do it now, aren't you? He'll come get you in Baldur's Gate, too. <laughs> okay. Um, the, uh, the Typhoon in, uh, uh, was thrown. In Neverwinter? Yeah. Where was he, where did you get him from? What was your inspiration behind him? Um, who, which one are we talking about? The one that's got the effort. The like me. Oh, the Twisted Warlock? Yeah. Or his father? Where did they get the inspiration for him? I actually was shocked. Dahlia was supposed to die very early on in the book. Uh, um, and we know her. And then she told me her backstory. And then it just occurred to me that, well, wait a minute. There were pine trees. He could have lived. And... I came up with Efren and, and I just, I think it, it added some real, there was some real power to the scenes between Efren and Dahlia on the boat and things. So I really came to, to love that whole relationship and realized that what I thought in both cases were irredeemable characters weren't, I hope Dahlia's gotten messed up now, but that's a whole different story. Um, but um, Efren is the only character that I have actually done an anatomically correct 
fourth edition battle scene with. It was Ephraim and Barabbas in the woods against the Ashmedei zealots. And Ephraim was doing everything. He, I had a stack of cards. I actually put all, pull out a stack of cards for a, a warlock of his level. And I actually ran it. Like a four, I actually ran through the cards, like, how would he do this? What would happen? And did an anatomically correct battle scene. And I will never do that again. It almost killed me. It was awful. I love the final product, but it was awful trying to translate all those cards into prose. And, um, yeah. So I, I just, and again, you know, this happens to me all the time. I get characters, I think they're throwaway characters, Athrogate, Quint. I think they're throwaway characters and they won't go away. And then I don't want them to go away after a while. Up, oh, we gotta leave. No wobble. <laughs> what time is it? Is it time to? <laughs> All right, wobble wobble. Okay, I'll do it. This is why I game. Many many years ago, my friend Mike Ledger, who now works for Blizzard, was running a dungeon, a campaign, and you always know you're in the Mike Ledger campaign because. By the time you get to third or fourth level, you will find a wand. And the wand will say, Wubba Wubba. And it will be a wand that does whatever the wand wants to do, essentially. What do they call it? A wand of wonder. Except it's not the wand of wonder from the book. Because Mike was really into his wands of wonder. So he had like ten different charts. He got from the Remember the, remember the small books they had there on magic items? I, I forget what they called them, but he had, they had some in there, and he had some from some of the Dungeon Magazine articles or Dragon Magazine articles. So he had like, you had to figure out which table you were rolling on before you were even rolled. So he had, you had so many outcomes, which made it really a wand of wonder. Well, now, in this game, I was playing a halfling psionicist named Oliver DeBarros. And if you know... Early Dungeons and Dragons, first edition Dungeons and Dragons. Psionicists had tremendous powers to do weird things and then were basically useless when they ran out of psionic energy. So we find this wand of wonder and we all roll for it and I won. So Oliver now has a wand of wonder. Well, in our group, we had a guy named Tommy Parker. And Tommy Parker's like the 6'4 prison guard who thinks he's like really tough and he is. But he's also a cream puff, and we all knew that. But poor Tommy. We were playing in a Ravenloft dungeon. Who's ever played Ravenloft dungeons? I never, ever, ever want to meet the people who design Ravenloft dungeons because they are sadists. These are, they're really great, awful dungeons. So Mike's running us in the Ravenloft campaign. And I'm playing my, my psionicist. And no matter what, no matter what the situation, every time I use that one, say wubba wubba, Tommy gets ganked. It's like he'll go running into battle. Like, I lift my sword, lightning bolt. Damn, Tommy grounded it. Okay, smoking boots on the floor. Whatever. Um, we're fighting a we're fighting a dragon, a white dragon. So Tommy puts on all his hot gear and I hit him with a fireball. We're running away from titans and I point it back and go wubba wubba and Tommy's feet get this big and he trips and falls and the titan comes up and Tommy's dead. We're on the edge of a cliff and dragons are flying at us and I go wubba wubba and the gust of wind comes up behind Tommy. And 
every time I used the wand, something bad happened to Tommy. It got to the point where I would, I take out my wand, Tommy, oh, did you throw his dice? Because he knew he was going to die again. His constitution was like negative 74 or something. You know what I mean? He just, no matter what. So playing Ravenloft, good old Ravenloft. And something weird happened, go figure, because it's Ravenloft. And this entire section, like a football field, field, football field-sized field, gets ripped out of the prime material plane with us on it, just us, and put into like this extra dimension. Yeah, you'll have that. <laughs> we're in the field. Hmm. We're going to become farmers. <laughs> we're trapped in an extra dimension. But we had a wizard who had a teleport spell. But we had one too many living bodies to teleport back. But we had a bag of holding and a rod of resurrection. Do the math. Somebody had to die. So we drew straws. And I got the short straw. So Mike says, okay, Oliver's dead. You're going to cast the, the teleport spell to put us back. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, oh, no, no. I'm not dead like that. You have to let me do it my way. So I took off all my gear because I wanted to get broken. Because he made some saving throws and stuff. He was a jerk. I pile all my gear, nice and neat. And I use my psionic powers to levitate up and telekinesis up to the top of this. I found the top of the globe. You guys down there, I found the top of the globe. And I just stayed up there till my psionic powers ran out. And then, right? So my psionic powers run out. And Mike says, okay, Oliver's dead. Where are you teleporting? Ben Tommy goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. He looks at me, he's like, you little bastard. I've been waiting for this. Oliver starts falling. And he takes his pencil out. And he points his pencil and he looks at me. I've been waiting for this for months. And he says, ha, wubba wubba. And he rolls his dice to see what tables he's on. He's on. And he rolls his dice all in the open. And Mike just looks at us and shows us the, the result. Caster and target change places. <laughs> That's why I game. And real quick, one more Tommy story, because you like stories. I ran a jousting campaign. And I had a deck of cards about this big that I had made to see who your opponents would be. And your opponents would be like a squire on a pony. And so they would have like armor class ratings and everything. And I set this whole rules for jousting. Meanwhile, I'm running a campaign for these guys. And Tommy's playing a paladin. And he just wants to get his war horse so that he can go to the joust with his war horse and his shining armor and all of this. This is his, like, this is his ideal. This is the hero he wants to be. Remember what I told you about criticals, right? Okay. So we, we're going through several levels. They do, and now they're going for their first joust. And one guy draws, like, the prince who's, like, in, like, full plate mail and he's on this trained, like, plow horse, right? With this plus five... Lance or whatever, and he gets wiped out or whatever, but it's okay because he fought the prince. 
And it's Tommy's turn. And he's got his brand new war horse, and he's got his gorgeous armor, and he draws a card, and it's he's fighting a peasant on a pig with a broomstick. <laughs> we rolled everything right in the open. I roll 20. 100%. After a month and a half of preparation, of buying his armor, of summoning his war horse, in the first pass, Tommy was killed by a peasant on a pit with a broomstick. I haven't spoken to Tommy in many years. Uh, listen, thank you all for coming. I hope you all have a blast at Gen Con. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.